And a pleasant good morning to you. Happy New Year from all of us. Daily Dose of Hoops podcast. Jaden Daly here with you as we turn the page to 2023. In the heat of Big East play, we look at the preseason favorite this season in its first matchup of the new calendar year, and that's the Creighton Blue Jays going into 2023 against the Seton Hall Pirates, hosting Seton Hall in Omaha, and to help us shed some further light on the Blue Jays and what to look for from Greg McDermott's team in Omaha, someone who's covered Creighton for quite a long time. We followed them since they were in the Missouri Valley. For White and Blue Review, an excellent site for all things Blue Jays. Does a better job with Creighton coverage than some other teams in our area with their independent coverage. And that's Matt DeMarinas who joins us. Matt, happy new year, my friend. Thanks for coming on and spending some time with us. Yeah, happy holidays, brother. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate the uh, intro there. Anytime, anytime. You've done such, such great work yourself, Patrick Marshall, who's been a part of the team for a long time as well, going back to the Patrick Valley days. Patrick Marshall. <laughs> I yeah. love him. That's a, that's a pseudonym, so I love when people still use that. I haven't heard that in a minute. That's pretty funny. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> so we looked at Creighton at 8-6, and 2-0 mm-hmm. in the Big East, winners of six straight to start the year, and then a six-game losing streak. Had a lot of people questioning things in Omaha before – Greg McDermott got back on the positive side of the ledger with victories over Butler and DePaul to start conference play. When you look at this team, Matt, through the first two months of the year, what has stood out despite the up and down nature of how the season's gone to date? Well, that's a good question. Stood out in a good way is probably, I, I think they are, they have a really competitive edge to them. Um, I think that's something that's carried over from last year, even though they have some different pieces in certain spots, uh, playing some different, some bigger roles. So I think that's something that's going to, you know, help them through the skid they went through. The The six losses in a row is a very weird, it was a very weird stretch because you had the Arizona game, which was the third game in the, in three days in Maui. So it's kind of a, you know, a toss-up in that regard in terms of how much energy you have, how much pop you have. Um, so that was down to the wire. Uh, then you go to Texas and you make a late, you know, you, you overcome some cold shooting and get hot late and make that a game down the stretch and have a chance to, uh, I believe they had a chance to tie in the final minute, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then... Then the, then the, they laid an egg against Nebraska, and that was your first real like alarm bell went off moment, uh, because that's not traditionally a game they lose. Uh, historically, of late the last twenty twenty five years, Creighton's kind of dominated that in state rivalry, and you weren't expecting Creighton to lose that game at home. I mean, Nebraska hadn't won there in the regular season since nineteen ninety five, and they hadn't won there period since about oh four, I believe, was the NIT game they played against each other um so that that sent off some alarm bells right because they didn't just lose that game on some kind of fluke play they kind of got outplayed for the majority of the game and never really could get themselves in any kind of rhythm to get back into it and with the crowd you know they had a sold out crowd and it was about 95 5 blue which isn't which isn't, isn't typically either usually more husker fans show up even in omaha so all the factors were 
favoring Creighton to handle business and end the two-game losing streak and get on, you know, use it as a get-right game in some regard, and they didn't do that. Uh, so that was the first alarm bell moment. And then you go to Vegas, and you find out Ryan Kalkmaner isn't going to be available, which throws everything out of whack because he is basically a linchpin for everything they do on the defensive end and on the offensive end. He doesn't really get a lot of notoriety for the offensive end part of it, but um, it still remains the case. And then they lose, you know, uh, you know, two one-possession games to BYU and Arizona State, and, um, you know, you're kind of left wondering. And then they go to Marquette, who had been playing really well, still no Kalkbrenner, and that one gets out of hand. And it was really the only – one of the only times in that stretch where they really kind of got their doors blown off um, to a degree. And so that's – put all that together, it's a six-game losing streak. It's not all the same – variables uh resulting in the losses some of the losses you would certainly go into the forgiven column uh given the opponent and the circumstances but there were also some things that some flaws got exploited in that stretch as well so it's kind of like you know one of greg mcdermott's old adages is it's never as you're never as good as you think you are you're never as bad as you think you are so it's always somewhere in between and creighton got caught in that in-between zone but they just couldn't get over the hump and I think it showed when you get Kalkbrenner back how much of an impact he has on both ends of the floor. Because you look at Creighton's efficiency, particularly in the Butler game, how much they were able to affect the game inside the three-point line. You know, their offensive efficiency went up dramatically from the games he missed. And then Butler's Butler had a tough time converting um, on shots inside the lane and shots inside the arc. Uh, and then the DePaul game on Christmas Day, I mean, that was really just the Trey Alexander show. I mean, he kind of took over, and that was, you know, they had I think four different guys hit threes to start the game, so that got everything flowing. Uh, DePaul really sold out to take away Kalkbrenner and make things tough inside, so they kind of dared Creighton to beat them from the three-point line, and then uh, Creighton and Trey Alexander were up to the task there with 16 threes. He hit seven of them. And that was kind of the show that day that Creighton just kind of outshot to fall. Um, I don't think that – I thought they were better defensively against Butler than they were against the Blue Demons, but the hot shooting kind of made it too much of an uphill battle for the for DePaul to win on Christmas Day. So that's how the Jays are now back on the positive side of things, as you said, with two straight wins and Seton Hall coming to town on third. And we'll get into Ryan Kalkbrenner a little bit too, Matt. How much different has he been since returning to the lineup? I know his, his absence for those couple games earlier in December was a little bit of a concern in and around the Big East, but is he back to 100%? How much of a different player has he been since his return? Yeah, I don't think he's back to 100% just yet. Obviously, that's going to take a little bit when you deal with an illness. It just saps so much of what you've already built up, so it takes a little bit of time to kind of get that all the way back. But I would think I think he's getting closer. I think when you look at the impact he had on both ends of the floor against Butler, he's he's in good enough condition to make a big impact still. So it's not it might not be his peak, his best necessarily, but it's you know it's good enough for him to make a dramatic impact on Creighton's chances to be successful. So that's kind of why he's back in the mix um, at the time he is. So. You know, you look at the Butler game, and it's really – I just think he got better as the game went on, which leads you to believe he's kind of, you know, just building back up. 
Um, he, I mean, he, he was eight for nine. He finished really well. I mean, not only finished really well, but he stepped out and hit a three, and then he hit a mid-range jumper from about the elbow area. So, um, you know, he, he flexed the jump shot a little bit there and, you know, was basically close to perfect at the, at the, at the rim. So that's and – then, and then you look at his gravity too. That's the other part of it that I think was big for Creighton was seeing the impact he had on creating space for Ryan Nemhart to get off the dribble, Baylor Shireman to get off the dribble, Arthur Kaluma to get off the dribble, and Trey Alexander and those guys because so much attention is diverted to whatever end of the floor he's on that, you know, not only are you tagging him, not only are you trying to, you know, do things with that position to keep him as far away from the rim as possible, but you're also crowding him to make sure he can't even get a touch that close. So that opens up lanes to attack for Nemhard, for Baylor, Shireman, for Trey Alexander, for Arthur Kaluma. And you saw those guys finish at a much higher clip than they had without him. I think they're, I think Baylor and uh, Nemhard in particular were, you know, seven for eight in the lane against Butler. And I think they were 11 for 29 in the games without Kalkbrenner. So you can see the impact and how difficult it is for them to score inside without him, not only because he's not there to be as efficient as he is, but because defenses are able to plug up the lane more in a more balanced manner uh, than they are instead of overloading it with Kalkbrenner's side of the floor. So it allows, it opens up so much, not to mention how good he is in ball screens. Like you can throw the ball to him at the top of the key at the point of attack and kind of play off of him with dribble handoffs. He knows how to screen and rescreen. He's really good about his positioning and, um, getting guys free takes up a lot of space out there, so it's hard to navigate around him if you're a defender trying to chase a ball handler around him. So, I mean, it just it, – it unlocks so much of who they are. It really – like, he is – if you're trying to figure out a number in terms of how much he how, – how responsible he is for their identity, both on the defensive end of the floor with the way they cover ball screens and the way they protect the rim and the paint, and also how he affects the game on the offensive end. I mean, there aren't many players in the country. There might not be five players in the country, honestly, that are more indispensable than Ryan Kaufman is to Creighton. Talk to Matt D. Marinas of White and Blue Review as Creighton hosts Seton Hall on January 3rd. First game of 2023 for both the Blue Jays and Pirates. And Matt, you mentioned Baylor Shireman a little bit when we were talking about Kaufbrenner, and I want to get into him a little more. The talented transfer from South Dakota State was very high highly coveted in the transfer portal and thought of initially as just a spot-up shooter. But you look at the stats and Shireman is the leading scorer and rebounder on this Creighton team. Could it be that even with all the hype that he had in the portal, he may still be a little underrated? And what has he given to this Blue Jays team that Greg McDermott may not have had last season? Yeah, I think when I think, you know, I think it'd probably be easy to look at the stat sheet. And obviously when you look at the 47% shooting from three that he pulled off last year, that's that's ridiculous. So you you it's probably easy to just, you know, focus on the shooting element of his game. But when you when you turn on the film, like if there's so much there's always been so much more to it. I mean, he's a really natural playmaker for one. He has you know, his passes have really good touch on them. They're really precise. He sees the floor incredibly well, probably better than anybody has in a Creighton uniform at the wing position. Gosh, since, you know, you get to go back 10 years, maybe to Grant Gibbs. 
Um, and then the rebounding thing, I mean, he's a really good defensive rebounder. He crashes well. He, he secures the ball. Like he's got, he's got the ability to go up and get it. And then when you factor that into Creighton's desire to play in transition, you know, you have a guy who can just grab it and go basically because Baylor can handle it and he can see the floor. Um, so when you have a guy who can rebound at that level, it really, um, it, it's, it's, it gives you another guy who can be the initiator in your transition offense. And it allows a guy like Ryan, guys like Ryan Nembhard and Trey Alexander, who played on the ball a lot last year and were the primary initiators of the offense in a, in a more deliberate manner. It allows them to leak out and be options for Shireman to find them on the wing and allow them to, you know, unbalance the floor and, and create mismatches in transition. That unlocks a lot of what Creighton wants to do regarding creating early offense right and then you just look you know with the way he is in the quarter court you watch him you know navigate screens set screens his movement his gravity uh it all has an impact it it, it, you know it can unbalance the floor because of how much attention you have to pay to him um from a shooting standpoint and then he also is getting a little bit more comfortable going into the mid post and you know trying to figure out how to score and make plays with his back to the basket he i think that was something that started to happen late against Arizona state. They try They, they implemented a little bit more of it against Marquette and you're seeing him get a little bit more comfortable kind of going off the dribble and, you know, just attacking the smaller defender if that's what they are guarding him with. There's really not a spot on the floor. He's terribly inefficient because you saw his, you know, he has a really, he can make an impact on the defensive end too, because his positioning is good. He knows where to be. He's really intelligent. And I mean, he pulled off some highlight reel blocks against Butler too, with some chase downs and some pin, you know, pinned a couple of guys off the glass. So, you know, he has size, he has smarts, and you know, he's kind of got the savvy. Um, he's he's a fun player to watch and something that adds a lot to Creighton's offense. When you look at what they had last year in Ryan Hawkins, there's a lot of value that Creighton would probably want back there from what Hawkins gave them: leadership, um, his ability to communicate, and you know, just know what's going on at every position on the defensive end of the floor. Um, but offensively, I think Baylor's a little bit of an upgrade in that regard because the shooting is more prolific. It, it's it's He can stretch the floor a little bit more than Hawkins could uh, in terms of range. And then it's just ability to play make, you know, it's, it's, it's a higher level than it was at that position last year. So there's, there's some downgrades, there's some upgrades. And I think when you pair it all together, it meshes really well with what Creighton has around Baylor this year. You take the good with the bad pretty much everywhere you go. It's an excellent point, Matt. And getting into now Creighton in, in the backcourt with Trey Alexander now playing off the ball as Ryan Nemhart has returned from his broken wrist that he suffered against St. John's in February. He's averaging almost six assists per game. You have Arthur Kaluma as well. And then Francisco Farabello, the TCU transfer, who had 16 points against Nebraska leading the charge off the bench, an eight-man rotation for Greg McDermott. What have the guards given Creighton? And considering that Seton Hall's backcourt is in a little bit of a flux with Kadari Richmond being somewhat enigmatic this season as well, and Jameer Harris not being able to get going every night, Alamir Dawes has been handling the ball as well. Where, where do the Blue Jays have an edge, and how decided is that advantage? Gosh, yeah, I mean... I don't know how many backcourts are just trying to rack my brain. I, th- I, cause I think it, when you think about backcourts, if, if you take the one and the two in particular, 
you, you know, you look at the way Nemhard and Trey Alexander, especially coming off the Christmas Day game, are playing right now. I mean, Nemhard floored with a triple-double. I think he had um, 16, 6, and 7, and then Trey had 32. Um, so those guys have a jolt of confidence right now, the way they're playing. I don't know how many backcourts in the Big East. I'm trying to think how many you would take over those that combo right there. I think uh, – yeah, I don't know, man. Um, and then you factor in what they have off the bench in their in their veterans in Sharif Mitchell and Francisco Farabella who have been pretty up and down this year. And, and then, you know, Sharif hasn't been always healthy. So, like, there's – it hasn't been consistent, but you still like that veteran pop, right? Like the ability to go off the bench and bring two guys who just, they've seen it all, you know, to be able to bring that off the bench is a really, really big component of any successful team, I think. So that's a pretty impactful quartet of ones and twos right there. Um, You really don't lose much when you take it off the floor, essentially when you, when you, I mean, in theory, um, and I think Francisco Farabello is starting to make a bigger impact. I don't know if there's something to it, but, you know, back in the day, you know this because you've covered basketball, college basketball for a long time, right? Like before the, before the transfer thing got more, became more of a part of every single college basketball team, right? You know, there was that, there was that, that notion that it takes a transfer, you know, about half a season or at least around Christmas to really, really get comfortable and find that, you know, that sweet spot with continuity with the new group, right? And I think that's starting to happen a little bit with both Baylor Shireman and Francisco Farabella. I'm curious to get, we have a media availability here in a little bit, and I'm curious to get Greg McDermott's perspective on that because I feel like I can, it's something you can start to see on, on tape, you know? They just look more comfortable, and I'm wondering if that's part of the dynamic because you throw two guys into a mix with a team that has a lot of returners back, and, you know, how does that, how seamless is that continuity transition, right? So I think that's what's starting to happen with Francisco Farabello. And it's a big reason he's been able to make an impact in the, in, you know, in, in the playmaking department, the shots, the shot making is still kind of, you're still left wanting there because he's a 40% three point shooter for his career. And he hasn't been that this season really at any point, if you take away the Nebraska game, which is really his only, I think you. I think it was two for two against BYU. I take that back. So that two game stretch there, he shot the ball well. But other than that, before or after, he has not. But he still made winning plays, and I think that's what you expect from a veteran off the bench to do. Don't try to take over the game. Just stabilize it. Bring some energy. You know, change it with your energy because you're not going to be in as long as the starters are. And then when you go to Nemhard and Trey Alexander, like. Well, first of all, Ryan Nemhard is really quick. He's really quick with the ball. He's a great ball handler. He's tough to pick with the ball, right? He does, you're not going to get a whole lot of live ball giveaways from him in in terms of having someone check him up and take it from him. You know what I'm saying? If if there's going to be a turnover there, it's either going to be, you know, going off the dribble with an offensive foul or or maybe just a pass that's off the mark a little bit. But he's he doesn't make many of those. He's very precise. He sees the floor really well. He manipulates defenses with his eyes to at a really high level. Um, and then he's a pretty good finisher around the rim, too. Like, he's, you know, you saw him, you know, put someone on a poster in Maui. Like, he's got really good elevation on his, on his, in his layup package there. So he can get to the, he can get all the way to the cup. So he's a tough guy to block. Um, 
And certainly with Kalkbrenner back too, like take that, oh, we talked about Kalkbrenner's gravity, like that opens up opportunities for him to use his speed and that first step quickness to get ahead of his man and get downhill and, and be a threat at the rim too. Um, he has a good in-between game with the floater and he's shooting the ball better from three of the last couple of games too, which is something that, you know, is a really important part of Creighton's offense. You have to have a guy who can navigate a ball screen and pull up and knock down a, you know, dribble pull up three out of the one spot. So that's big for him. And with Trey Alexander, you know, he's the guy that has the most responsibilities outside of Kalkbender on a given night. You know, he has to guard the other team's best player on the wing. And then he has to be able to create offense in a pinch, you know, late shot clock situations, um, off the dribble, off the catch. Um, he has to be, you know, his responsibilities on the offensive end probably aren't as – he doesn't have as much load to carry as he did down the stretch of the season last year when Nemhard was hurt. But he still has to have an impact on the offensive end. And I think there was a point in the season where – the defensive responsibilities were starting to maybe bleed into his efficiency on that end, especially with that mid-range pull-up game that he loves. I think going into the DePaul game, he was five for 32, I think, inside the arc in his last six games. And then he was four for four against DePaul. So that's a jump for him and maybe a booster for him. But those are that's what – out of that four guys in the guard court, like that's what you want to see out of those four and the impact they potentially have on this team's ceiling. Talking to Matt DeMarinas of White and Blue Review as Creighton opens 2023, continuing its BD slate by hosting Seton Hall in Omaha. Matt, we went top to bottom on the roster and got a better gauge of Creighton's pulse going into the new year. What must this team do to keep the winning streak going and go to 3-0 and in the BD against the Pirate team that is shorthanded, maybe a little weak down low until Alexis Yetna returns and in a state of uncertainty in the backcourt as far as so many options and in only so many balls to be handled, what must yeah. Creighton do to emerge victorious? Well, I mean, against Seton Hall, it's about their principles. You know, they want to they, – they have to make Seton Hall take tough twos and they have to be able to convert at the rim. Um, that was something – DePaul was able to take away the rim option and Creighton hit 16 threes. Does this team – have the capability of hitting 16 threes? Well, we know they do. But I'm not totally convinced they should be banking on them hitting 12 threes a night. You know, I feel like 12 threes a night is more around their ceiling on a good night than it is something that they can do on a regular basis, I guess. And that's only because of what we've seen so far. It's possible that they... um are a better shooting team and we're a more consistent shooting team, I should say, than they've shown. And they might just catch fire here. Like that 2019, 20 team did when they got rolling. The thing about the 2019, 20 team is we knew they were all a good, all great shooters. So it wasn't a surprise when they got cooking um, this team, it would probably be a little bit of a surprise because of how they're constructed. I'm not sure there's as many pure shooters, three point shooters on this team than there was on that one. So That'll be the question. How, how much, how balanced can they be? Because I think this team needs to be balanced offensively in order to be successful. They have to be a threat at the rim, both with Kalkbrenner and off the bounce with the other guys around him. And they have to be able to, you know, knock down those open shots when the lane is plugged up to be able to make the defense be honest in their setup and not overload to one particular area. 
And then with Seton Hall, like in terms of the defense, they have to be really good at protecting the rim um, because they can't put people on the foul line. They can't stop the game up. They can't let teams score with the clock stop. That's, that's counterintuitive to how they're built. They want the game open and flowing and, you know, the clock running and teams scoring. Um, and then they want to make teams take tough jump shots. They want to rebound and run. So that's kind of the bread and butter of this game. Can they make Seton Hall take tough jump shots? Last year, Seton Hall was able to beat them both times with that because Jared Roden is a mid-range savant, you know. Seton Hall doesn't have that this year, you know. They've got – they have a Kadari Richmond who can play out of the post. He's a really big physical point guard. But he's not a face-up, break-you-down, pull-up-from-15-feet type of guy like Jared Roden was. So I don't know if Seton Hall has that element of their offense that can beat you in that regard. So you want them taking those shots as much as possible. That's the key for Creighton. And then big picture wise, they have to protect home court. Looking at, had they done, had they done that more consistent, had they had a better non-con and hadn't come out of that 500, it'd be different. It'd be a different story. You know, they wouldn't, they would have a bigger margin for error if they were say eight and four, nine and three. Uh, but at six and six with six straight losses, you kind of, they kind of eliminated their margin for error. So they've got to get the wins that are on paper where they're the better team. They can't drop those games because it's going to shoot their confidence down and it's going to give teams around the league just more sense of that blood in the water with them. Um, and the other part of it is too, if you don't beat Seton Hall, you have to go to UConn and Xavier and those teams are going to be out to kill you no matter how you're playing. So they, they, I think it's a real, I think going into the stretch, I think most of the analysis, everybody I talked to, um, we all came up with, came to the consensus that these three games at home for Creighton were all must wins. They have to be three and zero coming out of this and playing well and making strides in order to go into those UConn and Xavier, into that UConn and Xavier stretch where they go back to back on the road, feeling as good as they can be in, going to those games. So it's still, it's still, we're still, it's still must win for Creighton. They have to protect home court if they want to win a Big East title. That's that's paramount, um, and it'll start. We know when they come back from break, where they get a Seton Hall team that's, you know, depending on how that St. John's game goes, um, you know, they might be facing a Seton Hall team that's that's really desperate, but also, you know, kind of searching for themselves a little bit. So you have to take advantage of that when you get an opponent like that in your gym. D. Marina's covering Creighton for White and Blue Review, an excellent source for all things Blue Jays. Can't thank you enough for the time you spent here with us on the Daily Dose of Hoops podcast. Matt, thank you for everything. Happy New Year, my friend. Hopefully we'll see you in New York in March, but if not, regardless, have a great rest of the season. Yes, sir, Jaden. Thank you for the time. Happy New Year, brother. Anytime. You too. And we're back on the Daily Dose of Hoops podcast. Happy New Year, everyone. Jaden Daly here with you once again as we preview the two local Big East teams in their first clashes of the new calendar year, January 2023. Our opening segment, we had Matt DeMarinas on from White and Blue Review covering Creighton. The Blue Jays host Seton Hall Tuesday night in Omaha. And the one local across the river, St. John's, in a little bit of disarray after three straight Big East losses, the most recent of which came on New Year's Eve at Seton Hall. The Red Storm regroups and returns home to Carnesecca Arena on Tuesday, where coming into town is the Golden Eagles of Marquette. Shaka Smart doing an um, earlier job of 
getting this team together than perhaps some may have expected. This was a team that was picked to finish near the bottom of the Big East, but now here is Marquette at 11-4 and four and 3-1 and one in the lead. And to shed some further light on what's going on in Milwaukee and the good vibes and good mojo that Shaka has injected into the Golden Eagles, we bring in Marquette's beat writer from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, making his return to the podcast. He was on last season as well. And that's Ben Steele, who joins us. Ben, Happy New Year, my friend. How you been? Happy New Year to you, my friend. I'm very excited to, to visit your alma mater. I haven't been there in a couple of years. You know, they had that they canceled the game last season. Uh, due to COVID, and I haven't haven't been to Queens in a, in a couple of years. I'm excited. Yeah, I believe the last time Marquette played a Carnesecca was in the New Year's Day game. Am I correct on that? Oh, is that right? Yeah, let me let me test my memory banks here. 1920. Yeah, must have been. Wow. Yeah, it's yeah, been a while. Three years is a long time. The last time Marquette was in New York, Mojo was the head coach. Yep. Yeah, a lot so, has changed since then. And income shot the smart to Karnasek Arena on Tuesday with an 11 and 4 Marquette team, 3 and 1 in conference, a bid win on New Year's Eve at Villanova. Villanova has only lost three times at the Pavilion in Bid East Place since the conference re- rearranged in 2013. Marquette is responsible for two of those losses. Ben, what did you see in Pennsylvania on Saturday that reaffirms? what Marquette has done this season and the commitment to maybe overachieving a little bit. Yeah. Heading into that game, Marquette hadn't pulled out a close victory in, in, in a tight game this season, all their victories before the Villanova game had been by double figures. So they had either pulled away down the stretch or just dominated throughout the whole game. Uh, Their four losses were all tight, you know, couple overtime games to Wisconsin and Providence. Uh, they had a late lead against Purdue on the road. Um, lost uh, after a struggle in the first half against Mississippi State. They got back in that game, but then they lost it down the stretch. They had, they had leads in. Marquette had leads in all the, their losses, but they hadn't quite figured out how to close out those games. So that was kind of the next step for that team to take, and, and they did it against Villanova, and it was really their defense that Offense for Marquette this year has been like much better than anyone anticipated. I'm sure we'll get into a lot of those details in the podcast today, but down the stretch against Villanova, um, they really put the clamps on defense. Uh, I, I think Villanova's last basket came with three minutes left. So they had Marquette got plenty of big stops down the stretch to pull that one out. And, and, and they really showed how, how effective a defensive team they could be. And one thing that Shaka Smart was known for, Ben, especially when he was at VCU before he, he took the job at Texas, was developing guards and getting them to mature ahead of schedule. We saw that with Briante Weber, with Jaquan Lewis, especially after yeah. Weber and Darius Diaz graduated. And we're seeing a similar career arc, at least this season, with Cam Jones, who's leading the Golden Eagles in scoring, maybe coming from out of the clouds a little bit because there weren't many around the Big East, at least not from where we sit here in New York or New Jersey, who expected Jones to be such an integral part of this offense, Ben. How much have you seen his evolution firsthand? And would you say that he's arrived perhaps a little prematurely? Yeah, he was a guy, at least around here, that people, you know, the big question with this team heading into into the season was who was going to score, you know, Marquette lost. Justin Lewis and, and Daryl Morcel, they're two leading scorers from last season. 
They were the guys that took the big shots in close games last season. Um, Cam Jones was uh, one of the guys expected to take a big leap this season. And, and like you mentioned, like he's done it. And he, he always you know, showed flashes as a freshman last season of, of being a really effective score. He's really crafty around the basket. He's not like super athletic. He's not going to dunk on you, dunk on your head or anything, but he's going to have, you know, really crafty reverse layups and spins off the backboard. He, he just has a real knack for, for scoring the ball. And he's got, you know, tons of confidence. He's willing to pull up from deep uh, three-point range, which much to the chagrin of, of Shaka Smart sometimes, uh, who's questioned his shot selection before. Uh, but he's really, even this season, from the beginning of the season to now, Cam has shown a lot of growth. Uh, like I mentioned, Shaka called out his 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 shot selection on, on shoot. I, th- I think the term that Chaka used early in the season was taking those moon shots that, that Cam likes to pull up from 40 feet. Um, he was taking a lot of those early in the season. He's really kind of cut those out of his out of his shot diet. And he's really either scoring at the paint or, or taking really good looks from the three point line. And yeah, he's been he's evolved into a really efficient scorer. And also, he's made a huge leap on the defensive end, at, as you know, you know, if you're going to play for Shaka Smart as, as a guard, you're going to have to be able to defend and get your hands on the basketball. And he's really done that a lot. He's been grown by leaps and bounds as a defender. I expected the leap as a scorer, but I wasn't really expecting this kind of jump as a, as a defender. But he's really committed and, and bought into it on that end as well. And as Jones has, has evolved and matured as a scorer, Tyler Pollock has done the same thing as a passer, former yeah. Atlantic 10 Rookie of the Year at George Mason, and now here he is. He's a double-figure scorer, but more importantly, Ben, he's averaging seven and a half assists per game. Yeah. That number really stands out and grabs your attention. What can you say about Tyler's passing and the next level that that's gone up to? Yeah, the whole team, um, Marquette, is really it's a really well-balanced offense they really pass the ball really well in the half court and that starts with with tyler like you mentioned um i'm just gonna pull up his turnovers numbers here there you know he's been really careful with the ball he's got 113 assists and just just 36 turnovers on the year and the ball is in his hands a lot so and those are really really great numbers and that, that contagious passing energy that marquette from it it all stems from Tyler and also Oso Iguodaro too, is who's Marquette's starting center, and he's a really good ball handler, really good passer for a big man. Um, Oso's got you know 49 assists and 17 turnovers uh, according to Marquette's stats here, so he's he's a really good passer. But it, yeah, it all starts with Tyler. Uh, he's really good at pick and roll, really good at at reading the defense and finding open guys, and yeah, he's the he's he's the stir that that stirs this Marquette's offense drink for sure. And you talked about also Iguodaro. We're talking to Ben Steele from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, talking about Marquette, Golden Eagles, coming to New York on Tuesday to face St. John's in a pivotal Big East battle. Iguodaro this season, David Joplin this season is Iguodaro from last season, coming off the bench and now Iguodaro as a starter being a crucial figure down low at Olivier Maxon's Prosper. What can you say about the front court and also Joplin to an extent as well, evolving and being such key parts of this Marquette offense. Yeah, all those guys have, have really taken on bigger roles this season. Oso was a you know a backup to Kirk West last season. Probably played I'm guess I'm not looking at the stats here, but I'm guessing he's probably probably played about 15 minutes a game last season. Um really playing most of the most of 
the lion's share of the minutes at center this season. And Marquette runs a lot of offense through him. Like they'll, he'll be at the elbow and then they'll have cutters, you know, cutting around him or going back door. And he's really, really good at, at, at throwing the, delivering those bounce passes, the cutters. Um, he's kind of skinny. Like he gets pushed around a little bit. Marquette, the biggest weakness for this Marquette team is by far is rebounding uh, offense and defensive rebounding. They're prone to giving up second chance baskets, offensive rebounds to the other team. Um, just cause Mark, uh, they just don't have a lot of a size. They don't have a lot of bangers down low. So it's like a really skinny, really long, really active, really athletic, but he's not, you know, he's not your classic banger that, that, that can, that can push people around down low. Uh, and Olivier Max or Omax is what they call him. Um, super athletic six, seven guy, um, really versatile piece that, that, that Chaka likes to use all over the court. Like he'll Chaka will put Omax in the front of his one, two, two press as a six, seven guy. This really causes a lot of problems for ball handlers bringing, trying to bring up the ball against that press. Um, he's really kind of switchable defender. Uh, he's really evolved as a scorer this year. Omax has just getting in the paint sometimes last season. He, he, like his brain would go a little too fast for his body and he, you know, get called for steps in the lane or, you know, he get happy feet. And, uh, but this year he's really balanced when he gets to the basket, finishing off at two feet. That's what the coaches really worked on him with in the off season. And David Joplin, I think is a really, really interesting player. He's, he's like a six, seven, he's really thick bodied, but he's a really good shooter. So he causes a lot of mismatch just with his size and his shooting ability. And he could play a little five. He played a, played the five against Villanova lot because Oso had two fouls in the first half. And so Joplin was guarding, you know, uh, Villanova's big guys for a while. You know, Eric Dixon's a big, thick guy, and 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 Joplin was able to guard him a little bit. Um, Joplin's another guy. He's just like Cam Jones, just like very streaky three-point shooter. And if he gets hot, like the ball's going up, they no conscience with those guys about putting the ball up. Um, never met a shot they didn't like. So, yeah, it's a really interesting front court for Marquette. And you talked about Marquette's rebounding being a weakness this season, only averaging 33 per game, but giving up about 36. And St. John's has the nation's leading rebounder in Joel Soriano, who was pretty much Angel Delgado light in terms of getting a double-double almost every night. How much would you expect Soriano and containing him to be a bigger part of the game plan for Marquette Tuesday night? Yeah, that's going to be probably the biggest matchup I'm going to be looking at right from the start of the game. Um, just how they're boxing out, how they're, you know, with Marquette's defense, they switch so much that sometimes that can cause offensive rebounding just just because of weird mismatches where a big guy or a guard will be uh, matched up against a big guy and the big guy can just grab the offensive rebound pretty easily. Um, so they'll have to be very conscientious where Soriano is, maybe even sending a couple guards down to, to, to crack block a little bit, uh, to use a football term, but yeah, that's that's definitely going to be. I'm sure the coaches are trying to scheme up ways tonight of and and drilling it into the team, just keeping that keeping Soriano off the boards. More importantly, for Ben, why can't Fordham get guys like Joel Soriano? <laughs> yeah, there it is. That's the crowd pleaser. We've been waiting for that line. Had to get that one in. <laughs> We're talking to Ben Steele, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, covering Marquette and the Golden Eagles will face St. John's Tuesday night at Carnesecca Arena. Ben, this is a group that if everybody stays together next season, 
is probably going to be looked at in the top three or four of the Big East. We'll not get too far ahead of ourselves, but yeah. this year, how much has this group acquitted itself as far as buying in and getting on the same page and maybe shocking a lot of people? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had some questions about this team coming into this season. I know a lot of other people did too. Um, you know, picked by the coaches to finish ninth in the Big East. Uh, they're certainly, I, I think, going to far exceed that. Um, really, the questions I had were, I figured, you know, under a shock of smart team that this would eventually evolve into a really good defensive team just because with all the the long-armed athletes and a lot of speed, I, I figured Shaka could mold that into a pretty cohesive unit. And it's actually like been the opposite this year. The offense has been really well. I mean, they're ranked in the top 10 and, and Ken Palm efficiency and on offense, which I didn't see that coming at all. And it's, like I mentioned, very well balanced, like four guys averaging in double figures and Tyler Kolick's uh, I haven't looked after the last game, but he's around nine points a game. So he's like right below the, the, the threshold of, of double figures. And they really pass the ball really well. More than half their field goals are, are come off assists and, and they're shooting 60% on, on two point field goals, um, really attacking the basket really well. Uh, that was quite a surprise to, to me. Um, so they're really buying into, to sharing the ball. And it really is like, uh, different kind of energy with this team i think this is more of what a classic shock a smart team likes to play like like those vcu teams that are i know near and dear to your heart Jaden, from from back in the day just really energetic uh get after you on the defensive end and then just share the ball on offense really uh they're really a fun team to watch and i think they can definitely finish um you know they i think they can finish in the top three in the big east if 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 all things break right now, you know, with the rebounding issues and it's not, it's going to be like UConn's a terrible matchup for this Marquette team. Like with the, with the size they have down low, I, I can't foresee Marquette challenge in UConn, but you know, who knows, but for sure, this Marquette team is definitely a lot better than even I, who probably thinks about this team more than anybody else outside the program was even expecting. And that UConn game, well, the first of two UConn games comes, in about yeah. another week or so yeah, when soon. the Huskies take on Marquette. But, Ben, let's look at this group this season. How much more can this team accomplish? And you mentioned some of the highlights and some of the concerns going mm -hmm. into February and March to be a legitimate contender and play essentially for NCAA tournament seasons. Yeah, I think as – much as this team has overachieved this season, I think they still have a lot of areas that they can improve of, prove on. Um, the rebounding, I think, is just going to be an issue all season. They're just going to have to work around that. But I still think this team can shoot better from three. They're a pretty average three-point shooting team, around like 34% this season. But they got some good shooters. I mentioned Joplin and Cam Jones. Stevie Mitchell had a, had a good three-point shooting night against Villanova back in his hometown. So I think he can take a couple steps up. Tyler Kolick shooting a lot better than he did last season. I think he can probably get a little more volume on that. Uh, Omax Prosper's a, a okay three-point shooter. I think he can improve in that area too. So I think they can go you grow in that aspect on offense. And then defensively, I think they still have not reached a level that definitely Shaka doesn't want, but I, I think 
there's another couple levels in this team defensively uh, with just with their the skill set and athleticism that they have uh, with all their players. Um, and they show that I, that I, I'm interested to see how, where they, if they can take some confidence on the defensive end from the way they performed against Villanova, especially down the stretch in that close game, getting all those crucial stops at the end of the game. Um, see if they can take off a little bit on the defensive end after that, because there's definitely levels that they can get to. So, yeah, I'm 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 pretty bullish on this team, um, and I think they can only get better for the rest of the season. Talking to Ben Steele, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, about Marquette. Golden Eagles face St. John's Tuesday night. One more before we let you go, Ben. We'll bring it full circle here. What must Marquette do Tuesday night against the St. John's team that's going to be desperate, looking for a, a big win of its own after losing three in a row and coming off a 22-point loss against Seton Hall? What does Marquette have to do to contain the Red Storm and keep its momentum going while also sending St. John's back to square one? Yeah, I think keeping Soriano off the boards. Um, and if they're, We talked about that, but if Marquette can – Lock in defensively, like they did against Villanova at the end of the game, the second half of that game over the weekend, that just caused St. John's to 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 don't let St. John's get into their press after made baskets, um, cause misses, and then get out on uh, in transition for themselves on the offensive end. Uh, those are probably the two areas that I'm going to be looking at the most. Ben Steele covers Marquette for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. He'll be on hand at Carnesecca Arena Tuesday night to watch the Golden Eagles face St. John's. Marquette looking to keep its upward momentum going and not closer to the door of the top 25 receiving votes in this week's poll. Ben, always a pleasure, my friend. Happy New Year. We'll see you Tuesday night. Awesome, man. Looking forward to it. Same here. Thanks again.